Hello, and welcome to Book Chatter, a monthly book club podcast presented by the Longmont Public Library. I'm Barb, your host for this episode, and with me today are Denise. Hello. Devin. Hello. And Jana. Hi. And we're here to discuss our latest pick, Golem Girl, a memoir by Reva Lehrer. Book Chatter is our new interactive book club. Each month, we'll spend 30 minutes to an hour chatting about a different book, and you can participate. Read the book, send us your thoughts, and then listen in as we share our perspectives. You can email us, leave comments on our Facebook page, send us a tweet, or leave us a voicemail. Please see our library website for more details on Book Chatter. And spoiler alert! Today we'll be discussing Golem Girl in its entirety, which means there may be some spoilers in today's podcast. So if you haven't finished reading Golem Girl yet, you might want to come back to this episode when you've done so. And let's start with some author info. Born in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1958, Reva Lair is an artist, writer, and curator who focuses on the socially challenged body. She's best known for representations of people whose physical embodiment, sexuality, or gender identity have long been stigmatized in our culture. Golem Girl is Lair's vividly told and gloriously illustrated memoir, the memoir of an artist born with disabilities who searches for freedom and connection in a society afraid of strange bodies. And you may be curious as to why we chose Golem Girl. Well, it's a chance for us to explore diverse reads. It's an own voices pick. In other words, it's a book by an author from a marginalized or underrepresented group writing about their own experiences from their own perspective. And now let's uh, talk about our overall impressions of the book and throw some stars at it. I'll go first. Some books take a chapter or two to really grab me, but Golem Girl had me from page one of the prologue. Lehrer tells her story with wit and humor, with a warts and all kind of freedom that I just loved, and the artwork blew me away. I give it five stars. Denise, how about you? Well, I agree. It's really well written. It's easy to read. And even though some of the subject matter can be kind of difficult at times, um, just reading about her experiences or those sorts of things, she tells her story like without making the reader feel unnecessarily uncomfortable or feeling guilty. Um, she just, it's a, it's a very connecting narrative and her artwork all the way through just draws the reader even more into her world. I would also give it five stars. How about you, Devin? Well, as you guys know, I really enjoy memoirs, and I found this author's to be quite moving, very vivid. Her descriptions are just mind-blowing, and often very, very funny. It drew me in, like you said, Barb, almost immediately, and it provided a voyeuristic glimpse into a life that I have very little personal experience with, which, you know, in my opinion, makes a good memoir. Um, I'm going to give it four stars. Okay. And Jana? So her insights into the human experience are both prophetic and poignant. I think that we need this writing now. I also give it five stars. Great. And let's dive into the book. Part one of Golem Girl focuses on Lehrer's childhood. And I think we all agree it's no stretch calling her childhood difficult. 
1958, 90% of babies born with spina bifida myelomeningocele died before age two. Usually, surgeons advise leaving children like Riva alone until they reached their second birthday. And if they survived that long, they were considered strong enough for corrective surgery. But otherwise, they were, as she says, a waste of medical resources. But Riva's mother, Carol, didn't see things that way. And Devin, you had some thoughts about that? Yeah, you you described it right. At the very beginning of the book, she just leaps right in to um, describe how her mother advocates for her to live as normal life as possible. And certainly, certainly went against the doctor's recommendation to put her in an institution. This part of her story, you know, really touched me. And it made me grateful that this is not the norm in America anymore. But looking back over the pandemic, maybe that's not the case, actually. Maybe it's a hidden problem that we should explore further. I think her mother's determination really stemmed from numerous sources. As the readers know, her parents suffered through multiple miscarriages before having Riva. And, you know, I really can't help but to believe that those experiences solidified her mother's decision to have her firstborn home and living with her family. She was a very, very wanted child, and her mother was not going to let something as silly as spina bifida, you know, keep her away from her baby. Riva also hypothesizes that another reason for her mother's fierce persistence comes from them being Jewish. Riva says in the book she would be the first in line for euthanasia, and her survival was regarded as individual revenge on Hitler's designs, which I thought was really interesting and powerful. Absolutely. And surgeries of all shapes and kinds, corrective, elective, successful, and unsuccessful, punctuate her childhood and her teenage years. I like something you said while we were discussing this earlier, Devin, that surgery's function almost has another character in Reva's story. Yeah, and just to suss that out a little more, um, Lara writes about surgery as necessary for society to accept her or to feel less upset by her appearance instead of being medically necessary. And the drive for humans to conform to a desired ideal that she talks about is very strong. And it's not only for those with extreme differences, but also, as she noticed, about her Jewish girlfriends uh, wanting nose jobs. And she writes, humans use surgery to force one another into a desired ideal. If it's medically possible to push a body towards that social ideal, then we make it a moral imperative to do so. And so for me, Lehrer is really bringing up the question of what is our desired ideal as a society and how can we expand upon that? And while she did struggle with... uh trying to come up to that ideal. There was uh, one place, one spot in her childhood um, that was uh, a bright period, I would say, and that was her time at the Randall J. Condon School, Cincinnati's school for children with disabilities. And Lara notes, no one on the outside could understand its pleasures, talking about the Condon School, or why anyone would become attached to the, quote, retard school, unquote, They didn't understand that at Condon, we were the school. We were messed up the way kids were, but not the way outcasts were until the end of the school day when we got back on the bus and turned back into freaks. You know, it's interesting, Barb, because with 
Reva's mother wanting her so much, like Devin talked about, and, and wanting her to be home and being pretty fierce about that, she she also advocates very strongly for her to go to the Condon School. And it's it just like we talked about, um, it was very uncommon for um, children with spina bifida to, to not be institutionalized. She takes it a step further, and in, in 1963... She, when it's really uncommon for them to to get a formal education, much less you know be at home, she really wants. She pushes for that, and I think it says a lot about what she believes Reva's capable of, um, and just focusing on that capability. And she's so then Reva talks about being aware that riding the Condon bus and being seen on the playground or walking to and from the school building frequently draws ridicule. She talks about the way the eggs looked when they hit the side of the bus and um, the words that were said. And that was a very vivid description. Um, but then inside the school, she and the other students are free to move around and do things in their own way and at their own pace. Um, there's accommodations for them. But yet the the decorations on the walls, you know, they have the ABC's cards on the wall like any other school, that kind of thing. And it's a place where they can accept each other and where their teachers teach them as students who just have different ways of doing things. Um, I mean, it's it's a normal looking maybe classroom that might have lower counters or desks without chairs or maybe wider doorways. Mm-hmm. Or handrails in in the corridors between the classes. I mean, they 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 accommodated, but yeah, you're still in a place that accepts you exactly. As you and and then she talks about some of the things over the years that teachers said, not necessarily meaning them in a bad way, but in truth, the expectations of the kids in, in their life after Condon School, those expectations are pretty low. They're taught things, but it's not in terms of a career. So it's really just giving them a place, but not necessarily um, a life uh, career purpose. I love how she, when she begins this part of the book, she talks about um, her first day at Condon, starting kindergarten, how it looks, the way it looks. And I love this quote. She says in chapter seven, the room was swirling with kids in wheelchairs and crutches, but Unlike the ones in the hospital, these kids weren't sick. And she continues, Boys and girls zipped all over the room in a wheelchair demolition derby, while others crutched at remarkable speed, considering the wingspan of five-year-old arms. I just, I love that description. It's the same kind of controlled chaos you would think of in any kindergarten room, just you add some equipment. And then she talks about spending nine years in this kind of juxtaposition of the expected school decor and the adapted furniture like we talked about and, and medical equipment that I can't even really wrap my head around having medical equipment at school. Yet it's trying to make that different as normal as possible. And um, in chapter nine, she talks about we didn't have to ask permission to be included, accepted by the normal kids the way we might have in mainstream. And that's really, to me, was profound. She learns building relationships and she gets opportunities to create her art from an, a young age at that school as well, um, which, you know, as we can see later, is just just pivotal for her career. Um, that's where she gets her skills to have her adult relationships, which she's kind of, we find out later is kind of told she may not ever have and, and gives her that self-expression. Yes. And part one of Golden Girl comes to a heartbreaking close with the death of Reva's mother, Carol. Carol, who's been Reva's fiercest 
advocate, coach, confidant who was annoying in ways only a mother can be, always there, always pushing Riva to live as normal a life as possible, all the while wrestling with her own demons. Suddenly, she's gone. Yeah, that chapter, that was that was powerful to me. Um, the way that she wrote that chapter with the stunted paragraphs and just the one-sentence lines, um, it really conveyed what the author was going through in real time. I was there in the room with her, feeling those emotions with her. That was a really well-done chapter, in my opinion. You know, on a personal note, this actually did happen to me, not with my mother, with a friend. I can't imagine finding a parent like this. Um, I had tears in my eyes reading this chapter, and that's that's the way it is. I mean, you're confused and you're thinking in one or two words and then you're jumping from thought to thought. And I I just really felt that that was a really representative um, description and chapter of the relationship she had with her mother. She lost somebody that was one of the most powerful characters in her life and at such a vulnerable age. And it just was really touching. You know, I have to admit, while her health and surgeries were a very large part of her story, I was most interested in her personal relationships and the experiences she had in life that weren't related to her disability. You know, I, she's just a really good writer. And those, those relationships came across. Well, we're going to take a very brief break here. We'll be back shortly to dive deeper into Reva Lehrer's Golem Girl, a memoir. Book Chatter Podcast is funded by the Friends of the Longmont Public Library. Hello, podcast listeners. If crafting and creating is your jam, you are going to love Creative Bug. Creative Bug gives you unlimited access to over 1,000 ad-free, concisely edited classes in high-quality HD video, free with your Longmont Library card. There are new classes from top artists released every day with projects for all ages, so you will always find something new to learn. CreativeBug.com is optimized for mobile and tablet, so it's easy to use and enjoy from all of your favorite devices. To find out how to access all the great stuff in CreativeBug with your library card, visit the streaming TV, movies, and videos page on our website. Now, back to Book Chatter. And we're back. In part two of Golem Girl, Lara is now a young adult, off to college, and the focus of her memoir shifts to her evolving self-awareness as an artist, a person with disabilities, and a woman with a complicated sexuality. Jana, could you expand on that? Yeah, Barb. So as a young adult, uh, Lara does come to realize that she's a lesbian, and she feels that this is yet one more identity that is not accepted by society. And, you know, we all have many different social identities. And for me, Lara is pointing out that uh, we need to be aware of what it's like to have and embody those identities that are less accepted by others. She writes, could you even love more than one person? It felt illegal, not to mention when I already had quite enough problems. Cripple? Weirdo? Now lesbian? So I think she's really pushing us to consider, you know, what is acceptable or normal in society and to look at how we can make it more inclusive to recreate our society and our infrastructure around that ideal so that there isn't self-blame. And she writes in this um, quote I'm going to read now about the very idea of looking at a world and feeling that you're not, that it's not made for you. 
And so she writes, our true obstacle was not how our bodies or minds functioned. It was having to wrangle with physical and social environments that ignored our existence. I'd always accepted that I wasn't strong enough, tall enough, fast enough, enough enough for the demands of the world. I never considered that society derived benefits from ignoring the needs of the disabled. You know, if I can jump in here, Barb. Um, you bet. It just brought to my mind um, a quote that a friend of mine said, and I don't even know if he came up with it, but um, I kind of grew up with a lot of ideas and thoughts, um, you know, that you get from your family, you get from your culture or community or whatever it may be. And, you know, this is another example of really reshaping some of those ideas for me. It really seemed like it was summed up to me when this friend of mine said, you know, everyone deserves love. And it's so simple, but it's like, whatever that looks like, if it's a best friend, if it's a girlfriend, if it's a boyfriend, if it's a pet, if it's a neighbor, you know, whatever it is, whether it's sexual or non, um, and whoever that's with, everyone deserves love. And we, it's not up to us to decide what that should look like. Yeah, could I... Could I interrupt also to offer another perspective? I, I would just like to ask how much of the discrimination that she encountered was due to her disability. Um, you know, the reader really has to be careful about not looking for disability discrimination around every corner throughout this book. Not to say that she didn't experience it and it's not a valid um, concern, but in this instance, right. in college, I think it's safe to say that Riva would have been treated with good old-fashioned sexism, whether she was disabled or not. Um, yeah, and it's also possible that her Jewish heritage could have um, played into her being treated unfairly as well. I know Absolutely. Barb mentioned something about one of the professors asking her where to find bagels, which is horrifying. You know, I, I'm obviously I'm not sure what college atmosphere was like in Cincinnati in the at that time, the 70s, I think. I can't imagine that they were very PC. So obviously, ableism is something that is a huge part of the author's life and something that very few of us experience personally. But we do have to take into account what able-bodied women were also going through at that time. And it's easier for the average reader to discount disability discrimination that the author goes through, but every female reader can relate to being treated differently just based on her gender. So there's many layers to her discrimination. Mm -hmm. Jana. So yeah, just one of the major themes, as you're saying, Devin, is sexism in this memoir. And, you know, from even from her own family, from her mother's stifled career, in the fashion, she really wanted to be like a dress designer. Um, to her male professors who dismiss her work in favor of trite male themes that often objectify women, she faces many obstacles uh, as a disabled woman um, and more as a woman. Um, and so she points out the fairy tale of the monstrous man being loved by the beautiful woman, which has no counterpart. Um, there is no tale of a monstrous woman being loved by a handsome man. The, the story that we know of as Beauty and the Beast, as uh, she points out, doesn't really exist. So I think she's kind of layering um, these uh, identities that um, are less privileged on top of each other. So you've got the, the disability and you have the sexism as well. And again and again, um, society is telling her that she's not a fit choice for her boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Uh, there is, yeah, there's a photo in Chapter 34 
called Reva and Will, 1980, at the University of Cincinnati. And that picture really summed this whole um, idea up for me. And you look at the photo, and in it, the two of them are standing in front of a wall, leaning in toward one another as lovers do. They, they smile serenely for the camera. And at first glance, you'd say they look so natural as a couple together. But as Lair explains in that same chapter, she and Will were confuting that Beauty and the Beast myth, and they were turning it on its head, um, that myth of fairy tale ugliness. And as a result, they were virtually invisible as a couple, even to people who knew them and loved them best. Exactly right. And what I found so tragic, Barb, was uh, the quote about her grandfather, who didn't feel that his granddaughter, Riva, was a fit choice um, or companion for Will. And he, uh, he said to her, I know you like this boy, Riva, but if you really care for him, you should let him see other girls. And that is like a dagger in your heart, right? It's like, it makes me think about how sometimes our greatest detractors are among us, like our own family members that are trying to make us fit into their imagined limitations of what we can be um, and who we can love. So it's just, it's really heartbreaking. And breaking those societal expectations is another big theme in Riva's memoir and her Chosen career path is is yet another example of that. Denise, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, you know, she talks about her artwork and the creative process as things that surprise her and that they confuse her sometimes. She's not sure why this artwork is coming out of her. You know, she sets, sets out to draw something and um, what she ends up with is not what she expected. I know a lot of people who make art and sometimes they're surprised by what they end up with, but it's pretty close to what they had in mind or, or it's like, oh, okay, this is nice, but it's not even necessarily a pleasant thing. It's kind of like, I'm not even sure why this is happening. And, and so she's got that whole dynamic going on within her and exploring her art, exploring kind of introspectively as well. And then her professors seem more concerned with the, the traditional expectations of a woman artist and, you know, like, well, maybe you should be drawing fruit or landscapes or, and and the idea of what makes sellable art, and that seems to be where they're going with it. You know, make art that will hang in a gallery and people will want to buy. And she's like, that's not even on my radar right now. I mean, that's I'm just here to be an artist, <clears throat> and much more in in a pure way. And she talks about the talent she has. She knows she has talent, but she doesn't seem to have the freedom to express that and the support to create beyond stereotypical theme- themes for females where she t- she talks about too like the men are are coming in and they're showing when they have the the critiques and stuff you know her her male artist student counterparts are drawing you know drawing nudes and they're drawing all kinds of things and that's okay but for what she's making no not so much and it, it really seemed to me that it was like her professors weren't willing to feel uncomfortable by what she was creating. Like, they were afraid, too. Right. And, and her pursuit of self-awareness through her art uh, took her into some uncomfortable situations as well. Um, she describes uh, coming here to Colorado in the summer of 1994. Uh, she signs up for a two-week workshop at Anderson Ranch Art Center, which is up at Snowmass. And uh, the workshop's name is Painting the Psychological Self-Portrait. 
Sounds good. So she signs up. Somehow, though, she made it all the way up to Colorado to Snowmass before discovering that what this really meant was that the participants in this workshop were going to take off all their clothes and paint themselves in the nude. Well, Reva panics because, as she explains to the instructor, she doesn't do naked. You know, naked is like seven seconds between stepping out of the shower and into her underwear every day. But uh, they work it out, and uh, she puts together a solution and the self-portrait that uh, emerges called Corner Terra Incognita marks a turning point in her artistic journey. And here's how she describes it in the book. I had nowhere to run. The mirror was inches from my skin. But by day three, I'd simply become a series of abstract problems to be solved as questions of measurement, color, and texture took over. I became an object, an animal, a subject in need of observation and nothing more. I let my brushwork track the convolutions of scars and the asymmetry of bones. And Lara goes on to note uh, that it took her actually months to complete the self-portrait, but afterwards she says, quote, I had no more secrets. I was able to go forward because I'd done my worst, close quote. Exactly. I, I love that Riva's artwork and her self-portrait that you're describing, Barb, and really her memoir are about telling the truth about who we, we really are and about looking in the mirror and accepting all of us, right? And when you embrace that idea, it is so freeing. And it reminds me that it is also central to, to the struggle of um, movements for equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, that idea that uh, for others to truly see us, we must truly see and accept ourselves first. Yeah, I, I like she. she's not even doing it for money. It's mm-hmm. not even not a question. to support her. Yeah, it's not even to support herself <laughs> primarily. You know, that's that's not why she set out to do it. It's not what she accomplished there. And and I love like what you said, Jana. It's just it's so much about her personal journey. It's not about so many tangible things that we think of. When we think of art, career, whatever it may be. Yeah, that, that reminds me of um, a footnote which uh, really stood out to me in Chapter 55. Um, she writes, no matter what your disability may be, it doesn't give you automatic understanding about a different impairment, or even frankly, a condition that the two of you might share. And again, as Barb was saying, and Denise, it's a very common theme in this book. Um, she's very self-reflective, and, and I agree with that quote. It applies to everybody, disabled or not. And that chapter in that quote is referring to her relationship with Brian, the man that she was going to marry, she was engaged to, she thought this is it, and they, and he had his own issues, as we all do. You know, they eventually um, break up. He tells her he doesn't love her anymore, and I feel like at this point in her life, she is searching for someone to take care of. She needs to rectify her feelings of guilt for not being able to save her mother, which, you know, who can blame her? Oh, yeah. Yes. It's huge. It is. It is. <laughs> and she, you know, she talks about how it wasn't her job to save him. It wasn't her job to um, rectify um, his problems um, using her own issues. And she she's mm. glad that she didn't. Yeah. In the end, she was glad she didn't go forward end, and, and yeah. call the authorities on him. Um you know, as the readers know, that was a very intense chapter, a very intense time in her life. But again, you know, an observed theme throughout this book is the author being self-reflective about her relationships, which is what 
I enjoyed and connected with the most out of this book was the, her relationships. Um, the art was great. Um, I, I know she's I know she's a very good artist and it was very interesting and I you know I recommend everybody read this book instead of like listen to it um, you know definitely get a get a print copy in your hand but she was so self-reflective and I'm wondering if she was self-reflective at the time uh, or if she was self-reflective while question. writing this book I would definitely hang out with her well and like you're saying too Devin she's talking about um People not having expectations. We talked about not necessarily having expectations of her having a career or being able to live independently, but but also expectations that, like we talked about with her grandfather and some comments, um, that she won't get married or they, she shouldn't expect anyone to love her, shouldn't expect to have relationships. And some of that's even her grandmother saying that. Um, yeah, you kind of forget. You kind of forget she's disabled throughout the book. You know, it's like kind of do. She has the same problems that everybody else has with love and mm-hmm. life. And you bet. Yeah, I, I, you know, as we talk about her different relationships and how you were so moved by them, Devin, it just it reminded me that um, I think that the point of her memoir is that she is able to express. Um, the humanity of of her of herself and her life and and the beauty and and that's something that we can all relate to um right the loves the losses it's just normal and so it's it's covered in this veneer of um of disability because she has had to live um you know within the world as a disabled person and she's come into a lot of hardships because of that but I think the real core and the real uh, purpose of this memoir is is to show us um, the humanity in her story, and that's why it resonates so deeply with us. Yeah, she she normalized all of the things she was going through. I mean, if you're a human being on the earth, you can relate to we something can. in this story. Mm-hmm. So in chapter fifty six, it makes a um, very to me unexpected turn, and this is this is the reason why I gave it four stars. Even though I love this chapter, I love this story, I love that she went through this. It was like, what? And then we went, we were going right the whole time, and then we just turned left and then went back right. So that was a little strange, but. Um, Reva finds unconditional love in her dog. She gets this puppy that um, a friend gives her, kind of forces on her, and she's like, I don't want a dog. I've never been interested in a dog. And then, of course, Uh as we all do, we fall in love with puppies. Who can resist? Um, Her dog's name's Zora. Yeah, I feel like she was able to connect with her mother through the relationship that she had with Zora. Um, And like I was saying, sort of a reversal of roles where she was Mm -hmm. able to play the caregiver for once and was able to understand more of what her mother might have gone through. By having someone, you know, someone she loves so much um, be sick. Um, of course, the dog mm-hmm. wasn't sick right away, but, you know, the dog lived to be 16, I think. That's a good And, age. you know, it, it is. Toward the end of her, Zora's life, you know, had um, surgeries and I believe um, glaucoma or something with her mm-hmm. eyes. I think all of us know when you have an elderly pet, sometimes, and it's just such a powerful feeling when you know that they are there at the end of their lives. And I think... Uh, I think Revo did a great job of describing the love that she had for her dog. And yes, I am comparing a dog to a human because that's how I feel. Um, I love my dog very, very much. And I know you guys all love your dogs. Yeah. And I just, I love that she, I love that she did that and included that chapter. Um, It was a little disorienting to me just as a reader, as you know, just the way you format a book, but it was wonderful. And I, I, I'm glad that she included that little 
insight into her life. So, and I'm wondering if she has another dog. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That would Good be question. really cool to know. Well, I, I feel like too, the most, some of the most unconditional love I found that she got was from her mom and her brothers. Um, and yeah, but there is something about the unconditional love of a dog. You basically meet its needs. You provide companionship, food, water, exercise, shelter, and that creature, it, 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 wants to be with you for life. It chooses that. And I think that unconditional choosing is a really super important component. Like you were saying, Devin, that it's, I think you can compare them because there's, there are ways we can get unconditional love from both, but it's maybe more consistent in some ways from a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a child and I have a dog, and you know, my dog never talks back to me or wants to borrow the car. Yeah, well, sometimes she talks back. They don't ask for money, and they generally don't get in the fridge all the time. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That was that was a lighthearted kind of. Well, it wasn't lighthearted because it was sad, but it was just it was just a different chapter. It was another another facet of her. Another thing that you can relate to, and and it was. Okay, I'm doing a hard pivot here. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, Rivalera is known for her portraits of people whose physical embodiment, sexuality, and gender identity are stigmatized in our culture. This seems like a, a good place to just pause and talk about the glorious portraits included in her memoir. They are um, amazing. And uh, I mentioned my favorite, which was the uh, one she painted, uh, began painting up at Snowmass, the corner terra incognita. That was definitely my favorite. Um, which one speaks most to you, Denise? Gosh, there were, when I was thinking about this, there were a good solid maybe five or six that I could have, you know, I mean, so many. There, were, I don't think there was one I didn't like or didn't have some sort of connection to, um, but it really boiled down for me with her circle stories, the self-portrait that she did. So if you've not seen the book and seen it, um, she actually has sort of two parts to it. And she depicts her head and shoulders. It's a self-portrait of, uh, in one painting. So it's head, shoulders. And then in the second one, she has her legs below the knee and um, in her shoes and kind of the earth. And then there's a space in between. So you, it's, it's hung um, where the feet are pretty close to the floor at the bottom of the second one. And then there's a space and this, the top one um, is about, ends up where you're looking about five feet high into her, her face. All of the components I thought were really powerful because she's got her face. So you're seeing the, the humanness of, of the, the face, you know, that we all tend to be drawn to is, as humans. And then you see the feet, but the the shoes depict her lifts that she has. Then you see this lovely grass. And so there's so much going on, but then there's this, this gap, this white space. And there's so much going on in that space. She describes um, the space being between the two paintings as uh, quote, a mystery and really just embodies so much that she talked about, you know, feeling like um, like a freak, like a golem, um, but also being a daughter and, you know, a, a girlfriend, a wife, an artist. But there's still some kind of ambiguousness or maybe unknowability. Um, 
And even though she's already drawn herself, she's already done the self-portrait where you see her, um, you see the effects of the spina bifida and stuff. But this blank space, it's like a de- depiction of being misunderstood because of her spina bifida and wanting to be normal. She talks about that normalcy and wanting to be normal and what is it and can I attain it? Um, so it seems like it, it's like seeming to see herself as something less than human because others do. So I think it, it, it's hung to show how tall she actually is. It, it's uncomfortable kind of in some ways to look at, but you can't stop looking at it. And that for me is the best kind of art when you can't stop looking at it, but the more you look at it, the more you see. How about you, Devin? What was your favorite? I have to say it's the one with her dog. She paints one called Zora, How I Understood, (laughs) 2009. And I know that you asked about portraits of people with disabilities, but this is the one that stood out the most to me. And that's probably for personal reasons. Um, Barb and I are both at the end of our dog's wonderful lives. Um, So Mm -hmm. this one, I think, probably touched me the most because of that personal connection. I think it's the only one of her paintings also where it's her and another being. I don't think she has another one where she's either alone or it's of somebody else. So that stood out to me as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, she really needed that dog's unconditional love after she and Brian broke up. And, you know, she talks about how she has Zora's ashes along with other precious memorabilia stored in her house. Um, she just, she was so close to that dog. And I I feel like this this painting stood out the most to me and I wouldn't mind owning that painting actually. So that's the one that I liked the best. (laughs) Love it. How about you, Gianna? Which was your favorite? So I found her series called Mirror Shards very fascinating. There are several portraits in the book in this series that examines the way people use animal metaphors and symbols as human reflections. Riva asks her subjects to choose an animal that represents some essential aspect of their inner selves. So for me, the use of animals as a form of self-expression signals breaking free of the normal confines of our bodies and awareness as we merge with and embrace other forms. And I'm a dancer, and I, I really related to the idea of how our hearts and our bodies uh, move to music And it's so freeing when we can express ourselves with our bodies in different ways and kind of move out of the standard confines of the way that we're allowed to move normally in the world. And I love just to tie in, there's a section where she talks about going to a dance that is for um, the Society for Disabilities um, conference attendees. And um, she writes that the way we're allowed to move in the world is 1% of what a body can do. And um, I loved that quote, and I just loved the description of the dance where there were folks in wheelchairs whizzing about the dance floor to the music, and some of them had just abandoned their chairs to the sides of the room and were just rolling uh, with joy yep. on the floor. <laughs> and I just really, I really love that. And I love the, the freeing nature and the expansiveness of that idea. Yeah, it's an interesting echo back to her description of kindergarten the first day, (laughs) that people were just free to do whatever they felt like, and it was freeing. It's amazing. Well, Lara wrote two epilogues to end her memoir. What made that necessary? Jana, can you talk about that? So like many things that changed um, in our lives in this past year, 
um, COVID was really the reason for uh, adding on the extra epilogue. And so when she wrote the first epilogue, um, things, in her opinion, were looking pretty good for disability culture um, at that time. But once COVID came along, she noticed with alarm that the pandemic had made people with disabilities feel unsafe, not valued, that they were dispensable as they watched the, quote, brutality of ableism on full display, a government willing to sacrifice human lives for the sake of the illusion of economic growth via the assumption that only able bodies are productive and that all others drain our country's strength, end quote. And if our listeners are in any doubt that uh, Lara's assertion here uh, about da- disabled people feeling dispensable right now, thanks to COVID-19 and, and the resulting strain on our nation's health care system, I'd urge you to listen to an investigative report from December 14th of this year, uh, the edition that day of All Things Considered. It carried a report um, whose title, I think, says it all. As hospitals fear being overwhelmed by COVID-19, do the disabled get the same access? And uh, we will be sure to include a link to that report in our program notes if you'd like to follow up on that. So, in effect, Lair's memoir comes full circle. She opens with a prologue detailing the origins and layers of meaning in the words monster, which comes from the Latin term monere, to warn, and golem, which is a Hebrew word meaning shapeless mass. And then she goes on to explain how those terms fit her as a person born with spina bifida. In closing her memoir, she warns us of our need as a culture, especially as we face down a pandemic, to recognize and tap into the creativity and ingenuity of the disabled community. And she says, what defines strength in a time of crisis? Disabled people are experts at finding new ways to do things when the old ways won't work. And to wrap up, I'm going to end with this moving and beautiful quote. Sometimes the monster is the one who saves us. It takes a monster to face down the dark. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you, Denise and Devin, for a great discussion of Riva Lira's Golem Girl. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us today. For February's Book Chatter episode, we've chosen The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. Print copies are available for checkout at the library. Ebook and e-audiobook versions can be borrowed online from the Front Range downloadable library website. So, read the book, join the conversation, Submit your comments and questions online by email or voicemail. You'll find details on how to do this in our program notes. And if you like what we're doing, please subscribe to Book Chatter. See you in February for our next episode of Book Chatter, the book club for busy people. Bye-bye.